For years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery knowledge and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB revealed a whole new platform with all new features for craft lovers to plan their unique brewery experience. Find, filter, search, and route your way to breweries worldwide and in your own neighborhood. To take full advantage of the optimized power of BreweryDB and to increase your brew knowledge, visit BreweryDB.com, your digital destination for brewery experiences. Good Beer Matters shares the stories of craft and culture found in every glass, and I'm excited to announce that the Good Beer Matters podcast and BreweryDB are collaborating this year to help you get to the bottom of it. Visit us at BreweryDB.com and GoodBeerMatters.net to finally have the experience you've been missing. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. The clouds parted and the angels started singing. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my whole life. And on that day, a little door swings open. And on the other side of that door is a better life. All you have to do is walk through the door. Be that person and open that door. And then it's up to you how far you feel like taking it. If I had a magic potion that promised a great life, would you buy it? You likely already have. Beer is a doorway to different cultures, science, technology, history, and the pure hedonism of aroma and flavor. My next guest is responsible for opening this door and leading the way for many of today's leaders and educators in beer. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 85 of Good Beer Matters with the one and only Garrett Oliver. Well, listeners of the Good Beer Matters podcast, today is the day that I have been looking forward to since I started this podcast. There is a gentleman who uh, particularly uh, inspired my um, my pursuit of better things in beer, and uh, today we get to hear from him. Garrett Oliver, I am beyond excited that you're here to talk to us today about uh, your world. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. But I, I, I will say that you probably need better things to look forward to. <laughs> but, yeah. but we all do right now. Yes. I, I have been advised that I should uh, find better goals. You know, the, the pursuit of uh, beer. Some people told me, well, at some point it's just beer. So um, uh, hopefully we can flesh out why. why th- I've, been that at, is- I've been at it for 32 years and I have not yet reached the point where it's just beer. So uh, I'm not, th- that I'm not afraid of. So and, and that's why you're here, because it is is and I tell people all the time it really isn't about the beer. We could have this same conversation talking about wine or music or film or art or or sports or whatever that thing is, but you and I could have the same conversation about that life, that that uh quality that 
that is on the backside of the beer, which really is just a doorway. And, and, and that's kind of where this is all going to culminate today. Awesome. Let's dive straight in. Let's dive straight in. First things first, um, just in case uh, those five people who have never heard your name in the beer world, um, let's, I'm just going to run through a quick highlight reel. You're the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery. Um, you are the author of the Brewmaster's Table and editor of the Oxford Companion to Beer. You're a slow food advocate. You're a James Beard Foundation awarding, uh, Award winner. Um, you uh, are currently and have started creating the Michael Jackson Foundation to support people of color in brewing and distilling. Um, you know, bottom line, Garrett, is uh, you, you've won many awards. You're a brewer, you're a traveler, you're a writer, you're a speaker, you're an educator, um, and you're a foodie. Um, uh, what have I missed? Uh, I think you've, pretty, you've covered it pretty well. You know, I'm a recovering, uh, you know, recovering filmmaker. Uh, and I'm uh, I'm 400 years old, as I tell the uh, the brewing kids. I've always been here, and I will always be here. <laughs> well, well, great. That that's good to hear. Um, uh, but you know, the question is, and, and I know, kind of early in your career and your studies, you did you did film, but you know, that kind of leads to an overall uh, or underlying theme of just kind of a, a sense of artistry in your life. Um, but I, I think a, a fair question would be, I've never heard uh, anyone ask you this, is besides beer and food and all that stuff, what else do you do for fun? Uh, well, traveling, I certainly do for fun. But to me, they're all part of one mind. You know, the 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 traveling and the cooking and the brewing, uh, uh, et cetera, are all kind of one one thing, you know, in my head, I will say this. I mean, there, there's, there is an extent to which, uh, I, I would say that as much as I personally think I'm interesting in, in certain ways, I'm also, you know, rather shallow. Like I don't, you know, uh, 85% of my brain is probably taken up with things that are, uh, in some way related to, you know, food or drink, or maybe at least 65%. You know, so if you ask me about, you know, various uh, shows that are on television or people who are celebrities in the news or, you know, sports figures or whatever else, I've never heard of any of these people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I don't really watch television. I live in New York. And except for during the pandemic, it's like there are always people, you know, there are always people. I'm surrounded by people. Um, and so like, I, yeah, I don't have much occasion to park myself, you know, in front of, uh, in front of screens for entertainment, you know, there's food, there's drinks and people, and that's kind of what I'm interested in. Well, I'd, I'd like to, uh, think of that as a sign of maturity because as I've gotten older, I've also really focused my, my, uh, set of interest, um, beer and food, uh, being primary and a few other things being secondary and tertiary. But after that, it's just, I, I, I don't have time to do all those things I wanted to do as a younger person. Um, I, I, and I'd love to say a lot of it is because I've already done those things. They were fun. I, I'm, I'm over it. Now I'm just focused on this is what I want to do. sounds like you are, are kind of in that same mindset. Yeah, this is the way, you know, that I like to, I like to spend my, you know, like to spend my time. Yeah. Um, and so now my interest in drinks is not just beer. Uh, I drink plenty of wine. I'm really into cocktails, spirits, I actually sit on the board of a, uh, of a company 
uh, called Honkaku, who are importing high-end Japanese shochu into the United States. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting journey because I know a lot about sake, but I didn't know that much about, you know, Japanese shochu. So this is a you know really cool to me, um, and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to uh, to get back out there again when it comes to the traveling because. Even though I kind of felt like I traveled too much in the past, I was in 10 or 12 countries a year. Uh, you know, be careful what you wish for. Like I wanted to travel less, and I and I ended up like everybody else, traveling 100% less, you know, which was not what I had in mind. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, uh, so now now we're trying to find that happy medium. Um, um, well, let's let's dive into uh, pun intended the meat and potatoes of this interview. Um, I, you know, I, I I'm I'm typically not much of a fanboy. I mean, I I've met celebrities, I've I've talked to them, and it, that's not something that I get all uh, uh, crazy about. Um, and uh, but if if there was an exception, it'd be talking to you today, not because of you're a beer celebrity and, and all the stuff that you do, but because you have inadvertently kind of um, guided my path or um, uh, just with everything that I'm doing now. And, and so one, I got to say thank you for that. But two, um, I, I want to read you that passage that that, you know, kind of shined the light on on uh, on this whole thing for me. I want to read this passage, and then this is going to be the kind of pivot point for the rest of our conversations for this interview, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Go. So you wrote, um, and, and this is that thing that was just, this was the iconic thing, but in the Brewmaster's Table, um, chapter 3, page 99, I think it was, um, you made a claim and a promise. Um, you wrote, paying that little bit of attention, both to your food and to your beer, is the difference between having an okay culinary life and having one filled with boundless riches of flavor. Learn a little bit about the amazing variety and complexity of flavor that traditional beer brings to the table, and in return, I promise you a better life. I'm not kidding. It's that simple. Tell us, tell us about writing that line in this promise of a better life through beer and food. I think it's it's really uh, all these years later. It strikes me still as a hundred percent true, and even really more true than I realized at the time that I wrote it. I, I've met people who said they read Brewmaster's Table, then they ended up doing this and through that, like they met their future wife, you know, and they've been on three trips to Belgium so far, and this is what they've been drinking, and you just see the joy that this thing has brought them. And what I came to realize is that, and as you were saying earlier, it kind of doesn't matter what it is. Say you love jazz music, you know, and, uh, you know, you collect some stuff and you listen to it all the time and you know stuff, stuff about jazz, and it's just one of these things that you enjoy in your life. Well, a day came where somebody played you your first Coltrane record, mm -hmm. right? You know, maybe it was somebody in your family or whatever else said, hey, listen to Miles Davis, check this out. And on that day, a little door swings open. And on the other side of that door is a better life. All you have to do is walk through the door. And on the other side, you don't have to do anything else. All you have to do is go over there, pay a little attention, absorb this, and now you have jazz forever. And your life is simply better. And that is kind of the thing that I have been trying to do for people. Um, and previously had it done for me, 
um, for 35 years now because I've seen that, like, you know, like, look, I love wine, but like, if you ask me, like, well, what is the soil content in this part of the Loire Valley where they make, uh, where they make Chinon, I have no, not only do I have no idea, I don't care. Like, I really, I really don't care, like, like whether it's chalky or it's loamy or whatever else. That's not my level of expertise. Do I know what Chinon tastes like and who are the great producers and what kind of flavors come from Cabernet Franc? Yes, I do know that. The stuff that I need to know in order to have a good time for me, my family, and my friends. Um, and that is what I think people are, are interested in. And, you know, you love baseball. Somebody took you to your first baseball game or whatever else. What I'm trying to do, both through brewing and also through writing and other forms of communication, is to be that person and open that door. And then it's up to you, like, you know, how far you feel like taking it. But I do think that uh, if you know more about things that bring pleasure, uh, then uh, you are going to end up uh, with a better life, as long as those pleasures are not too debilitating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That you, and that you take, yeah, like, you know, butter is great, but, you know, a stick of butter every day is bad. You know? Yes, um, yes. It's better in bread than just it's, by itself. <laughs> exactly, by itself. Um, and so, uh, and I look at all sorts of alcoholic beverages just like butter. You know, a, f a few French fries, fine. You know, like two bags a day, not good. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, I would hate to imagine my life without French fries. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, um, that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to put a few French fries in everybody's life. <laughs> perfect. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I think back to my life and, 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 and basically this phrase that you wrote in that book, it was kind of like a key to something that had always been there. And, and, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, you say you're uh, 400 years old. That makes me probably, I don't know, 20 or th uh, 200 or 300 years old. But I remember <laughs> listening to the police, especially that song walking on the moon. I'd heard that song, Oh gosh, hundreds and hundreds of times. I mean, it's the police. You you listen to the song over and over again. But I remember the place and time, um, or I, I remember where I was when, for what whatever reason, it was the first time I listened to that song and just listening to Stuart Copeland come in with the drums and this very intricate kind of uh, backbeat where that didn't synchronize with the bass that was going on. It was just like all of a sudden I heard that song like I've never heard any song ever again. And from that moment, I've li listened to songs differently. It's kind of like the first day that, uh, you know, when I, I tried, you know, a, a Flanders Ode Bruin or, or, or a Duval in Madrid for the very first time. It's, it's, these are moments when the clouds part and the angels sing and, and you are forever unchanged or you're forever changed, excuse me. Um, and you look at things differently. Um, what you are capturing in this book and really through your work is, a lot of people say it's just beer, you know, get over it. And I talk to these people all the time, but, but it's when you look beyond it, this is where the world opens up into something richer, more beautiful. You're more sensitive to these things. And, um, and, and I, it, it's hard to reproduce those experiences, but I find beer and food make it easier to reproduce those experiences. That's absolutely true. And I would say, you know, I mean, you know, the old, uh, cliche, 
you know, that, uh, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you are. Yeah. Um, and I think that is true of, you know, of experience as well. You know, the more you try, the more luck you're going to find. Um, and so you're going to happen upon things, you know, if you're not closed minded, if you're looking for interesting uh, uh, experiences, you have a greater chance of discovery. And what we're trying to do is to show you something brand new to like. And it's really, you know, it's really kind of an important things like, you know, something brand new to like. When was the last time you found a whole new thing to like, like every day? Was it three weeks ago, a month ago, a year ago? You know, it's uh, uh, the opportunity to show people that or take them deeper into it if they've already seen it, you know, is to me a great privilege. And I see people making that leap and they've been drinking, you know, whatever kind of industrial light beer. And you see that that moment happen on their face like like like, holy crap. Like, I, you know, the scales fall away from the eyes, et cetera, and you can see. And they will then go on to have their own experiences like the one that you spoke of, uh, ones that I wrote of, you know, uh, in Brewmaster's Table, which I still remember like they were yesterday, you know, sitting there on the canal in Amsterdam, you know, single. Uh, uh, that's the name of the canal, not my <laughs> uh, you know, uh, canal. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure I was single at the time, but anyway, <laughs> I was going to um, say, is the, is the sequel going to be uh, married <laughs> with, with kids yeah, or, <laughs> exactly. but, we're, but, we're, but I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm having this, uh, beautifully cooked, you know, salmon and this, you know, kind of a burr blanc, you know, lemon burr blanc sauce. And I've got a perfect glass of wit beer in front of me and the sun was dappling through the trees, you know, et cetera. And it was just like, yeah, the angel, the clouds parted and the angels started singing. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my whole life. And I've had any number of experiences, you know, uh, uh, like that around beer. Uh, and yes, around other uh, uh, liquids um, uh, uh, sometimes. But more around beer, I would say, you know, than just about anything else and those experiences around beer are so much more accessible you know to the average person i mean the fact that you can go to you know to your you know local decent uh uh shop and buy something which is the best in its category in the world for like five dollars is is amazing I mean, even good tomatoes are like $4 a pound in New York, you know, if you want real ones in season. Um, and so like, that's an amazing thing that, uh, that that people can enjoy every day. It's the same price as, you know, your double latte at Starbucks. You can get some of the best beer in the world. It's incredible. So I, I gathered that this has also guided your career, but is this – this um this uh life that that you've living that, at least the instagram life that you're living um because uh, you know every, everyone's human and everyone has to clean the toilets every now and then but um but uh the travel the the, the writing the food the beer um w- was this all part of the plan or is this something you just kind of fell into and realized hey this is this is a great ride let's keep this going i think it's so that i i i fell into it and 
you know, determine the parts that I, that I wanted, you know, and the parts that I didn't want, and obviously try to keep some and get rid of the others, you know, so, you know, things that I didn't want to do on a day-to-day, you know, basis, people often ask, well, you know, why didn't you open your own brewery? And I got to a point where I was like, well, I could, you know, and many people have come along and said, we'll back you to do whatever else. But I've had an opportunity to do great work, you know, at you know, what I think is great work at uh, at Brooklyn Brewery. And I have not spent my time worrying about the air conditioning systems, you know, in the building or, you know, how to find the best insurance, you know, for, you know, for our whole team or, you know, any number of other things that an owner of a small business, you know, has to do. I have gotten to spend my time on the art of brewing and uh, and the art of communicating what it is, you know, that we're doing uh, in brewing and bringing, you know, what I feel are cool experiences uh, to other people. And that's fun. Now, like you say, is it fun every single day, all the time? No. <laughs> yeah, there are times Someone's got to clean the mash tun. Yeah, or, you know, and somebody's got to go to the airport and someone's got to catch the 5 a.m. flight, you know, and dash through. I remember, you know, just before the pandemic, um, and I know I know this sounds awful, uh, but I'll say it anyway. I was complaining bitterly of having to go to France and England. Now, don't get me wrong. I love France and I love England, but it was January and that was not when I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I normally do not travel in the middle of the winter. It's like I travel a lot in the spring and travel a lot in the autumn. And then summer and uh, uh, and winter, I pretty much had to myself at home because I like my home. Um, and I was like, oh, man. And there were all kinds of things that you know the brewery needed me to do. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll go. But I'm also then going to go to this big wine fair in the Loire Valley. And I'm going to go do these other things while I'm over there. But I really don't feel like going to, you know, to Lyon and to, and to London, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the thing is, I ha- one, I had a great time, which I always do. Two, you know, thank God I went, because like right after that, didn't go anywhere for a year and a half. Uh, and so I think there there is often a quality where even the things about which you complain uh, are things that you end up enjoying at the time, which is a good thing, you know, and also, you know, the thing you have to watch out for, you know, in in a life in beer, you know, or in food or in, in booze or whatever else. It's like it, uh, your business is pleasure. So separating your business from your life is uh, not that easy for a lot of people. Well, and you bring up a different topic that, frankly, is off script, but I love it. I want to go with it, is um, some of these things that we don't want to do that turn out to be just sheer genius or luck um, or serendipity. Um, you know, I, I can think about the very first time I tried Chopino, and I was thinking, oh, God, I don't want to eat that. That looks horrible. And then I tried <laughs> it, and now I, I am forever a, a raving Chopino fan or um, – Oh, gosh, you know, I think uh, when someone described what Lambic tastes like to me, and then I was thinking, well, that 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 sounds like crap. I don't want to try that. And I tried it. I was like, ooh, that's compelling. Um, 
Have you had many of these experiences where you just kind of uh, like traveling, where you're just like, I don't want to do that, and they turn out to be just absolute revelations? I've got a question for you. How are you engaging with your customers? Are you adding value or just vying for attention? If you have a business, then you are an authority and should be regarded as a partner in everyone's mutual success. But getting that message across in the first place, that's the trick. At Mountain Sea Media, I use education and storytelling to keep your brand on top of mind. So if you're done with ineffective marketing and want to create more impact, I want Mountain Sea Media to be your resource for high-value branded content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to explore the possibilities. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one I, one comes immediately to mind is uh, some years ago I was in Brazil and I had heard of this great restaurant called uh, Mocotó, which is outside of, um, of Sao Paulo, near the airport, in a really rough area. Uh, and this guy, his father had run this bottega, which is like a, a rough neighborhood bar. Uh, and his father had run it. The son went to cooking school came back and started we started cooking in the kitchen of this place Brazilian classics you know that were kind of like home home country food nothing special but he was taking it to a different level so if the regular type had pork rind in it he was sous-viding the pork rind and then double frying it you know to turn it into something you know completely different i hate the word elevate because that doesn't you know that implies that the original was no good or something, which mm-hmm. is not true. You know, barbecue does not require elevation. And maybe this didn't either. But when they told me what mokoto actually was, and that I had to try it, mokoto is basically an awful stew. And you're talking about, you know, chunks of heart and lungs and this and that and and I'm and I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, you know, I I have a job, and the reason why I have a job is so that they will give me some money so that I don't have to eat lungs. That's <laughs> why that's that's why I work. <laughs> like yeah. like I, like I do not want this mokoto, um, but I'm here and I insisted I really wanted to go here. Um, and so, of course, I'm going to eat it. That stuff was so delicious. I Look, I've eaten plenty of offal. I know what the stuff tastes like. Um, but this guy had just gone with it to a different place. And, like, we were asking for a second bowl. I'm, I'm like, scraping ceramic off the bottom of the, uh, you know, of the bowl trying to get more. And I was like, wow. You know, I, I came in here looking to avoid that. And it was spectacular. Mm. I think there are things like just this weekend, I did something which is not, you know, in the same realm, but, you know, a friend of mine saying, hey, we got to go to this swimming hole, you know, in the middle of the forest and jump into this spring water swimming hole. Uh, The water is like 30, you know, 36 degrees. I'm like, no, no, no. It's very nice out. It's 80 degrees. I do not wish to jump into a pool of ice water. Now, I only did it once, but I have to say it is remarkably clarifying. You know, I can see why people say, like, it's like beyond drugs or something. 
Oh, and yeah. You come out of it and you're so glad to be alive and everything looks extra, extra crisp. And your brain is kind of humming for an hour on the endorphins that were, you know, created in the situation. Uh, so, you know, Which, I, I kind of feel like that, that there was, there was, there was little risk. I did it. I'm glad I did it. Might not need to do it again anytime soon, but it was awesome. You know, I saw that. I, it looks like you posted that on Instagram and, and I was thinking that very thing, uh, at those photos thinking that, you know, okay, I know it's summertime, but uh, given where I think you are, I'll bet you that water's cold. And I, I have a oh, few experiences. Was, I mean, I have never felt anything like that oh, yeah. before. Actually, once before I did, I did smoke sauna uh, at a Sachse brewery in Finland. And it was in February. And they said, okay, we're going to go out. First of all, they're like, okay, everybody get naked. And I'm with a bunch of like brewers and people I don't know. I just got off a plane that morning and they're like, everybody get naked. I'm like, um, oh, it's going to yeah, be that kind really of party. We all like, yeah, we don't like, and I'm dressed for like uh, after interviews and stuff. It's like, yeah, we don't really do that so much at home. It's like, no, don't worry about it. Everybody get it. So we're like, okay, we're sitting in the smoke sauna, you know, inside this room. The walls are covered in black creosote. You put your finger to it and it comes away with a pure black spot. And it's like, well, what do we do now? It's like, well, we go out in the snow and we drink from the haruka, which is this uh, kind of traditional two-handled wooden cup out of which you drink saksi, which is the very traditional Finnish beer, thousands of years old. And we're walking out in the snow and steam is rising off of everybody as we stand the snow like naked. And it's like, okay, what you do now is you run across the ice and you jump through that hole in the ice and then come back and go in the sauna. Well, <laughs> yeah, I have never gotten out of water so fast in my whole life. I look like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I went in and I just bounced straight back out onto the ice. And if you ever tried to run while naked on ice, you know, it is like a Bugs Bunny cartoon or a Roadrunner cartoon. It doesn't really work. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't my most dignified moment, but it was a moment that once again, I'm glad that I had and that beer brought me. That I, and that I never would have had otherwise. Well, and and I have a few experiences with uh, ice baths and cold water immersion, and and I can only, I can only relate that these are things that you tell yourself you never want to do again. But damn, we're glad we did that when we did. Yeah. It's just you know, you, yeah, these are unparalleled experiences. That exhilaration of just like walking on air for a day after cold immersion is just, it, it's worth the temporary grief and and you know whether it's food or beer trying something new that it's uh, my experiences have way more often led to something great uh if i had uh, vegas odds on the stuff then i would i would i would take in the house you know it's um it's excellent well, stuff i watch people and i get a kick out of this people drinking you know our our sour beer bel air because we tell people, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's not as sour as sour gets, but it's pretty sour. And a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like sours. I've tried a few of them. I don't like them. I'm like, well, I think you'll like this. So they, they drink it, and the first thing is they wince. They're like, oh. And then they get about halfway down the glass, and they're kind of like, hmm. And then they get two-thirds of the way down the glass, and they're like, hey. <laughs> and yeah. then they order another one. Yeah. And that, and the, and I know that it's coming. And that's the, the that, that's the thing that's really so much fun to watch. They didn't even really want it, you know. They were very skeptical of it, and it took like a half a glass to win them over. And then they order the second one themselves. 
And that's like, for me, that's a beautiful, as a brewer, that's a beautiful thing to watch. You know, because this person, not only do they like my beer, which of course I want to see happen, but they also just discovered in that moment that they, they could like sours and there were sour beers that they would want to drink, whether it's mine or others, and they should keep looking. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's a new thing to like. Yeah, that, and that's just like that cold water immersion. It's like, ooh, I know I'm not going to like that. I know I'm not going to like Ooh, hey, that was actually kind of good. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, and, you know, we talked about this earlier, how, I mean, you are of a singular focus and singular mind, but um, if we, if I were to look back from, from my perception, what I've read and what's out there in, in the internet land of, of your career as a whole... Uh, it, it seems that, uh, you know, of course there's beer and then there's beer and travel and then there's beer and travel and food. And, and, and now there's this, uh, whole piece on, uh, diversity and, and doing some good work in the world. Um, tell us about how your career has evolved. Well, I mean, it was the movement towards, you know, starting the foundation last year was, you know, uh, uh, it, it ran through a number, you know, of different things. And if we really want to get into it, I'll kind of start at what I think of as the beginning. Um, five, six years ago, Thrillist ran an article by uh, a guy named Dave Infante. Uh, he called me. I was in Slovenia uh, in the vineyards, uh, touring the area. And he calls me and he says, I'm doing an article uh, about how come there are so few black brewers in the United States. And yeah, I'd like to interview you, you know, about this. And I, I called him back and I said, well, I don't you know, mean to be rude, but I'm not going to, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in being interviewed for this article. And, you know, he asked why, and I'm like, this is a stupid question. You know, have you noticed the country that you live in? Have you noticed that the restaurants that you go to, that there are no black people in the dining room? There are no black people there as servers. There are no black people in the kitchen except for the porters. Do you understand this country and how segregated it is? You know, and the various things that barricade people of color from doing all sorts of things. You know, craft beer is in America. And so to expect craft beer to be different than America is irrational. And so what you're telling me by asking me this question is that you don't know what country you're in. So I suggested to him that he read Ta-Nehisi Coates, whose book was just out, Between the World and Me. Like, read that and then come back when you know something or understand something, and we can have a conversation based on some information. But at the current time, you don't have any. And so he mentioned, you know, our interaction at the beginning of this article, which he wrote. He missed the point entirely in his article, and then his article won the James Beard Award. Now, to be fair, he was a nice guy, and he was trying to get at something, but he didn't get it because he didn't really dig into, you know, what it was all about. So to kind of loop back 20 years plus ago, we had started uh, at Brooklyn Brewery. Uh, the founders of Brooklyn Brewery started 
the Michael Jackson uh, fund for brewing and distilling. This was a scholarship funded by brewers and distillers. Uh, people, people who are listening hopefully know who Michael James Jackson was. I make an argument that he was the most important voice in food and drink in the 20th century period. You know, you can talk about Julia Child, you can talk about great French chefs or, you know, great winemakers, but there is nobody who can claim to have essentially almost single-handedly launched an entire worldwide industry, which is what Michael did with his writings. You know, 14, 15 million books in more than 20 languages sold. When you go to a beer competition anywhere in the world, the concept of beer style, which he you know, put out into the world um, and of which you cannot find any mention before him, beer style, uh, is the structure, you know, the lens through which we see, you know, uh, beer today. So he did the taxonomy. He, he, you know, he was kind of a, a deity, you know, in that area. And he was also the biggest whiskey writer in the world. Most people in the beer world didn't know that. Yeah. So we had this fund. It was administrated by the American Institute of Wine and Food. Long story short, AIWF wraps up. Tom Potter, now of New York Distilling Company, says to me, Garrett, I'd like you to help us administrate this fund. And I said to him, it's like, well, I'd love to help you, but I'm only really interested if these scholarships are going at least predominantly to people of color. And at first, Tom pushed back against that. Um, but then started to understand what I was saying and said, you know, I think this would be right. And I think Michael would really appreciate it because, you know, Michael was not just was he not racist. He was actually anti-racist and he did things about it. You know, to walk me uh, as a young African-American into the room for the final panel to choose champion beer of Britain, which is a really big deal. In England, it, it can make the fortune of your brewery for the next 20, 30 years. It's not like winning a gold medal at GABF. It's like a massive thing that's going to be in all the papers. Um, and, you know, everybody turned around as soon as I walked into the room uh, or even to the back hall, you know, and 150 people turn around and say, like, who the hell is that? And Michael stood up for me, said, like, he knows his stuff. You know, sure, he doesn't look like the rest of us. And, you know, he's not from here. But he knows his stuff, and he's going to be as good on this panel as anybody, and probably better than most of you. Well, and wouldn't back, wouldn't, and wouldn't back down. And can I ask? Can, let me, if I can derail your story, please forgive me. But I want to ask you about that because um, back in the day when we were when we were not three hundred and four hundred years old, um, the just the general life and times seemed to cater to people who were white and who were male. Um, and, and that's not a good thing. It's just what it was back then. How how did you overcome that resistance? Was I, I mean, granted, the story you're telling now had to have been a big pivotal point. But how did you overcome that resistance and become the Garrett Oliver that we all know today? Well, you know, I had a number of advantages, which I did not until recently, you know, truly appreciate. Yes, I appreciated my upbringing and the fact that my parents pushed education above all things, you know, in, uh, in our household. But I guess I had not thought as hard as I might have about the fact that beyond that, 
they made sure that we got into good schools instead of, you know, the local neighborhood schools, which were, you know, run down. We lived in an African-American neighborhood. And even though it was middle class, you know, money was short in these schools. Stuff wasn't great. They bust us across town to get a better education. And on a day-to-day basis, uh, worked to counteract the message we were getting every single day from society, including from our teachers, that you're worthless. You know, I could get a 95 on a test, and the message from the teacher is you're worthless. Every day, every single day. And, you know, a lot of people couldn't take it. And it wasn't that I was somehow better or stronger. I had parents who counteracted that message strongly every day, you know, to give us the, you know, the mental and emotional toughness that it took in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, you know, to get through that. Because it didn't matter how smart you were, your teachers would just beat you down. And the smarter you were, the worse it got. And so, you know, as I have come through this, I had, if you look at older pictures of me from, say, 10 years ago, you'll see I'm always like wearing a suit. I'm wearing a suit, you know, and a tie and whatever else. And part of that was an inoculation against stupid questions and comments and things that people would say. Uh, And I remember, you know, the politician and, you know, grandee Vernon Jordan, you know, Mike, Bill Clinton's best friend, what everyone thinks about that. And he named his autobiography, Vernon Can Read. Now, Vernon, you know, Jordan was a, you know, was a top lawyer, you know, and millionaire from, you know, his legal practice. But people his whole life treated him. I was like, wow, you're you're so articulate. As if that was a compliment, when in fact any black person can tell you that that is an insult, and it's an insult that you get every day. Mm-hmm. Nobody would ever say to a white person, "Wow, you're so articulate." It's as if they had seen a talking dog. It's like you know, why would I not speak English? <laughs> like, yeah, I live, I live here, and I was brought up here. So like, why does that surprise you? Yeah, why does that surprise you? Does it surprise you because our society has? bankrupted the education systems in places where, you know, me and my family live and that it didn't work this time? Is that why you're surprised? Um, And so in starting, you know, the Michael James Jackson Foundation and realizing the barriers that, uh, uh, you know, that African-Americans and other people of color have I, I I decided that what, what we were going to do was we're going to toggle one thing. And one of the main barriers is education, professional education, and brewing and distilling. So a few facts that most Americans may not be familiar with. Uh, African-Americans in the United States, and I'm using African-Americans as uh, the example here, uh, are less than 1% of people in brew houses and distilling houses. They also, as families, have 10% of the assets of European-American families, 10%. That doesn't mean they're paid 10%. It means that, that is the, those are the assets, the money you could put your hands on, the value of your house, the value of the things that you own, because we were redlined 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and kept from owning property for hundreds of years. So essentially, we have nothing. Now you go look at what does a brewing education cost? You can go to American Brewers Guild, great school. I have hired many people out of there, but that's eight or nine thousand dollars. Going to go to UC Davis and and do a full rigged course. Great, wonderful courses can take you anywhere in the world, but that's sixteen thousand dollars. Well, when you have one tenth the assets of the other people in the room, how are you going to do that? So, if I, as a brewer, am requiring two to three years of experience or an equivalent education, and there's less than one percent of people of color in the brew houses. Where will I find two or three years of experience? Oh, equivalent to education. How will this person get that equivalent education? So I, sitting in the chair as brewmaster for 30 years, waiting for an African American or other person of color to show up looking for a brewing job, surprised that they don't show up, saying to myself, well, maybe this is not a job people are interested in. And I was actually part of the problem, because what I didn't really understand at the time is that racism is not a feeling; it's an effect. You know, it's a system, and I was part of the system. And the only part, the only way I realized that was to reverse the question, and instead of saying, uh, uh, "Well, uh, it's not my fault," I thought about it. It's like, well, what if it was my fault? Just for argument's sake, what if it was my fault? Mm-hmm. How would it be my fault? It took me approximately three minutes to figure out how it was my fault, <laughs> you know, and how I had actually done nothing. Despite I've sent Iraqis to brewing school, I've sent Gambians to brewing school, but these are people who had come into the brewery through refugee programs. There are no refugee programs for, you know, Latino and and, and African Americans and and Native Americans, we don't have refugee programs. We're from here. Well, and, so, and honestly, you don't need a brewery intern uh, when you've got chemicals and boiling wort and you've got tens of thousands of dollars in the boil kettle right now. You don't need an intern. You need someone no, who can and, just go and, take and, care of it. An intern is a burden. Like, I can't—the reason why we require two to three years of experience is that if someone makes an error in the brewery, it's not like you burned a piece of fish in the kitchen on Saturday night. You're going to kill somebody. That's what you're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. You're kill somebody or you're going to, uh, uh, you know, send $75,000 worth of beer, you know, down the drain or something like that. You know, we can't have amateurs around us unless we're like standing there the entire time and we're taking care of interns. But interns can't help. Interns are a thing that you bring on to give back to the industry. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we brought in people through, you know, through refugee agencies and whatever else supervised. And some of these people worked their way up and became employees of the brewery and some of the best employees that we've ever had. But that was not happening, you know, for people of color from the United States. So what we do is we give scholarships for technical education in brewing and distilling. So you know, many people get a, a brewing job and they may have been, say, a dishwasher and they worked their way up and they're taught how to brew, but they can't become like assistant brewmaster because they were simply taught by rote. You know, take this much malt, mix it at this temperature with this much grain, stand it for that long, 
run it off like this, boil it with these hops and do whatever. But when someone says, well, we want to change the color from this light straw to a deeper amber, we want it to be drier, and we'd like to bring the IBUs up by 20%, that person doesn't know what to do. They don't actually know, and we'd like it to be fruitier. They don't know any of the science behind what it is they're doing every day. So they have a job, but no career. Yeah. Which means that you can't really, you don't have any upward mobility, et cetera, which is how, you know, people get stuck. And what we're doing is unsticking that situation for people who clearly have drive and intend to go. And I'll, I'll tell you, the biggest thing that changed my mind was going to Fresh Fest a couple of years ago, African-American run beer festival, and seeing 3,000 or so people of color, all just as geeky as anybody I've ever seen, drinking craft beer. And I knew in my heart that, 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 that you know, black people and other people of color loved craft beer too, but I'd never seen them all, you know, together. And even though there were about 30% of other people there as well, people were spontaneously crying. They were spontaneously crying at the festival because the scene was so beautiful that they were overwhelmed with emotion. And and I, so I want to ask you the question too, from kind of like that pivot point that we started with of of promising a better life. How does that translate into? Uh, and I, th- this one's kind of obvious, but you know, talk through it. But you know, these people um, who have not had opportunities before can now because of the Michael Jackson Foundation, can go get educated, can get into the beer industry, and you don't have to be a white male to do it. But uh, but so how does that improve their quality of life, and how does that improve the quality of life for people like you who are actually trying to do something about it to make this better for all? Well, I think, I mean, I certainly I've started to hear back from our first wave of awardees, so, you know, a couple of whom have been through their courses and just you know, t- telling me this is exactly what I needed. It was mind-blowing how much I learned. I'm applying it every day right now. And these people will get, you know, will get jobs. They will get better jobs than they have now. They will move up within their own companies and become uh, uh, even better, you know, for uh, for the companies they work for. You know, it, it, it's a benefit to everybody. It's also just great for business. One thing you realize is that no matter how you think of the way you conduct your life, if you walk into a room and it's full of, the room looks like America, you know, it's like, it's, it's a blend of all kinds of people. You end up feeling better in that room than you do when you walk into a monoculture and trying to explain it to people. It's like, well, beer bars are friendly. Why don't people just go? It's like, okay, try this on. You're a really nice guy. You're not a racist or anything. But suppose every time you wanted a really great cocktail or some tremendous wine or a great beer, when you went to the place that sold it, the establishment, the bar, the restaurant, everybody in there was black. And you're a white person. Everybody. Every time. Everybody. Every day. How do you feel about that? Now, you might say to yourself, it's like, oh, I'd be fine. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) Okay? Some days you'd be fine. Some days you'd be like, you know what? I had a hard day and this is a little weird for me. Like I'm not in the mood uh, uh, to be surrounded by such a strange feeling situation. 
And why? It doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you're a racist. It's because it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> you know, that that's the that's the thing. You know, we live in a segregated country and the segregation is weird and we can feel it in our hearts. You know, and when and when that goes away, you suddenly feel better and you don't realize why until you look around. It's like, oh, we're all here. Yeah. And it's nice. Well, and it's like, you know, if if we had that monoculture, then you and I would be eating burgers and drinking Pabst every single day. And that's not, you know, having those things aren't a bad thing, but I don't want that every single day. I love the yeah. diversity that beer brings. I love the diversity that food brings. And, you know, as of this recording, you know, the uh, 2021 Olymp- Olympics is going on. And I love to see that uh, uh, Suni Lee, uh, you know, just won gold in American uh, gymnastics, and and she's from uh, her family's from Vietnam, and and there's um, a black woman with a Scottish last name representing Canada, and 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 I played I played water polo through uh, high school and college, and watching the women's water polo team, there's a black goalkeeper, and and. And growing up through uh, water sports and swimming and surfing and all that stuff that I grew up in, there were very few people that weren't white in that. Um, it it became more prominent that women would engage in these activities, but just because of access, because you know, uh, and uh, you know, it costs money to live close to the beach. It costs money to have access to a pool. So therefore, if you are a swimmer, water polo, it's it's so nice to not see everything looked the same anymore yeah. because it's so much more interesting. It's so much more exciting. And, and also, you know, people think of beer as a European thing. And it's true that the beer styles that we mostly brew in, you know, are of European uh, uh, background, but, you know, uh, brewing comes out of Africa and is very central to every single traditional African society. And I have been in the villages and there is always a traditional type of beer. It is usually brewed by the women. It is usually consumed, you know, uh, uh, communally. And even when they don't make it all the time anymore, they'll make it for holidays or whatever else. Whether it's you know bilbil in the Congo or unkomboti in uh, in South Africa, these beers have been made for thousands of years. So to say, like, well, brewing, especially, you know, oh. Uh, uh, Indigenous fermentation is from Belgium. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not from Belgium. You know, just because you just heard of Brett like 10 years ago doesn't mean that like uh, these, you know, Lambic-like beers somehow come from Belgium. They don't. They come from Africa, which is where they've been brewed for thousands of years. And so, you know, the idea is like, and who do you think made all the beer, you know, up through the Civil War? You know, who do you think was growing the barley? Who do you think was making the bourbon? And it's it was like, us. And it's, it's it was like, us. Like we, we we've been doing this for thousands of years, including in the United States. And it's only recently that it turned into, uh, you know, like being a chef, you know, turned into you know a European American thing. And all we're doing, we're not bringing diversity to things. We're rediversifying, you know, this, this part of the culture because it used to be diverse. Um, in fact, maybe slanted in the other direction uh, at one point. And then when it started to make money and become a profession that you could get paid for, that's when it was taken away. Yeah. And, okay, this is for these people. And yeah. we're like, no, this, you know, this is not true. And it's not good or in any way useful for anybody. So we're going to change it.
Yeah. Yeah. I, it's like uh, Pasteur didn't invent fermentation. He just studied it and put his name on one of the processes that came out of his studies. But I mean, that had been going on for forever. Um, and, you know, discovering Britannomyces, you know, like you said, it's like, well, that they just discovered that in, in England, but, you know, it happened everywhere. So it's it just kind of understand that um, this, you know, like we talked about in the very beginning, beer is just a beer, but through that beer, through that doorway that the beer creates, there's a world that opens up um, and it, it's just more interesting, more exciting and, and, um, and, and, and I think this is all and, what we're talking about. And you can see everything really through it. If you follow the history of beer, you can follow the history of science and culture and so many different things. I give talks on, you know, the overall arc of American food culture, you know, from reality through a period in the mid 20th century where we made facsimiles of everything. Mm -hmm. Facsimiles of beer, facsimiles of bread, facsimiles of cheese. If you're old enough, you remember when there was only one or two kinds of bread on the shelf, yep. only one or two kinds of beer on the shelf, only four kinds of cheese, you know, et cetera. You know, we grew up in the matrix. Yeah. You know, there were not fresh vegetables at the supermarket. There was wedge lettuce and then everything else was frozen or canned. Yeah. In the 70s, that's the way that it was. So we, t we took bread and made it into this sponge full of chemicals that stayed fresh in a bag for two weeks. You know, and it wasn't bread, but we didn't know that. It wasn't until I got to France in 1984 that I realized that we've been lied to. Mm -hmm. You know, we thought that there were like five or six cheeses. And here's one shop with 400 cheeses. What the hell's going on? And, 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 and oh, sorry, sir, that cheese right there, that's moldy. You might want to get rid, rid of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I literally, it sounds ridiculous now, but, you know, you, you have to look back. I mean, and even if you're old enough. You think you know what a supermarket looked like in 1980. I promise you that you don't. Oh, like, go go online and look at pictures from the insides of supermarkets from 1980, and you will be shocked. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't bear any resemblance to what you see now. There was no beer aisle. There was no bread aisle. There was no cheese aisle. You know, we in American food, you know, we basically – try to drill everything down to a monoculture and there was one version of everything and it was like tasty wheat you know in in the matrix it's like everything tastes like chicken yeah and that's what we did and part of our you know our story of american food and drink is climbing out of the matrix and you know that's really you know what i think of uh as as you know my career which you know i've had a, a great privilege and continue to uh you know, to do stuff like this. Our latest project, you know, called Refraction, is something that Vinny Slurzo from Russian River and I have been talking about for 10 years. We took 30 barrels of cool ship wort, so spontaneous fermentation, but he just left it out overnight, directed the wind onto it, et cetera, and uh, racked it into uh, IBC totes, Shipped it refrigerated cross country, so technically we were not shipping beer across state lines because it was not beer yet. Yes, um, but it was inoculated with all the local Sonoma uh, uh, microbes. And when it arrived in Brooklyn, we brewed 300 barrels of wort. We blended it with the 30 barrels of inoculated wort, sent it directly into uh, into wine barrels, and uh, uh, and barrel fermented it. 
for a year and a half, and we just finished refermentation and refraction, which has very kind of goose lambic qualities, really lovely, very Sonoma, uh, is going to be on the shelf. And it's an expression of, you know, of, uh, of, of Vinny and my mutual, you know, respect for each other and our friendship and the cool thing that we've been looking to do for a long time and everybody gets to drink it, but it's really about us, you know, and it's, a, you know, it's an expression. And this is how, you know, you kind of get from filmmaking to, to beer. The beer is a drink, but it's also a communication, you know, like a book or like a film or a TV show or a painting or a mm -hmm. piece of music. It's a communication. I'm trying to tell you something. Yeah. And, you know, you can hear whatever you want, as you will in Miles Davis's music. He might have been saying one thing. You may hear another. But that's what that's what it's there for, you know, and to be enjoyed. And hopefully, you know, when you taste it, you know, you taste something and it makes you think of something and it leads you in some interesting direction. Yeah. And if we can do that, well, you know, what else do you want? Well, it, it's like I always tell people, if, if you want uh, something inoffensive, then go to a hotel and look at the art. Uh, if you want <laughs> if you want something a little bit more uh, challenging that makes you rethink stuff, then put on some Miles Davis, drink some refraction, um, eat some of that, uh, that cheese that looks like you should have thrown it away a week ago, but it's still in the, in the case, uh, at the store. It's, you know, these are things that will, that will redefine how you look at stuff. Well, you need to go to, you need to go to some hotels in Norway. I can tell you that. I mean, boy, you will get some spooky art, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we just, you know, six months of darkness will apparently, you know, bring a different sensibility to hotel art. Uh, but I have a, speaking of brewing, I have a brewing team meeting, which is starting now and I have to run off on you and, uh, and, and, and go do that. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, I was going to try and stop you earlier if, uh, for just a couple last questions. Do you have just uh 30 seconds or, or right around there? Uh, like or 30 seconds. Sure. Okay. So, um, a couple quick things. Um, t uh, tomorrow you're heading off to Mars to open up a brewery and start the culinary, uh, uh scene there. What's your last meal? <laughs> What's your last meal and your last beer on earth today? Oh, well, my, I don't know what my last meal is, but, uh, you know, it's probably like a spectacularly good steak frite, you know, and a, uh, and a nice bottle of Saison Dupont. Perfect. And, and last uh, rapid fire question, um, Garrett, with all of your summary of experiences, why does good beer matter? Good beers matters because your life matters. As far as I know, you only go around once, you know, and if you would like to have the best possible life, you know, it's like doing music. You, you know, you're not going to try to write a symphony and use half the instruments and half the notes. You know, you want all the instruments and all the notes. In my case, that includes not only beer, it includes wine. It definitely includes mezcal, rum. I have a, a large bar here. So it's just a matter of diversity of experience and diversity of pleasure. You know, the word pleasure brings to mind to the American dirty things. You know, I mean, the American winces when they hear the word pleasure. Um, I'll tell you what, Italians don't wince. When they hear the word pleasure, they think awesome. <laughs> and that is the way that I've come to think about that word. I, you know, I drink beer to have more fun and more fun is what life's about. 
That's perfect. And I, I'll, I'll link, uh, I, I know what, uh, what you'd want to send people to. I will link all that in the show notes. Garrett, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your insight and, and the stories. It's an absolute delight. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, more fun to, to you and, uh, and, and your, and all your listeners. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Have a great day have, have and enjoy one. the, enjoy the brewing meeting. All right. Thank you. Ciao. <laughs> Ciao. It's easy to think of beer as a product or a craft. And while this is true, it's good to remember that beer can also be so much more. Like a good book or a song that takes you back to that special moment, beer can transport us to another time and place. But first, we must understand how it works. This episode with Garrett Oliver kicks off this year's Beer with Benefits series, where we learn how a beer in your hand can begin to make your life better. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.